Good morning, everybody. Good morning, New Hope. Good morning to those in the room. Good morning to those watching online. Good morning. Please turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12. For the benefit of guests, my name, uh, and for those watching for the first time, my name is Joe Miller, and I'm the pastor here at New Hope. Um, Man, what a joy it was to have Jason Milani with us this morning. Um, Just, it was incredible. Uh, that I said, I told him right after he got off. I said that his guitar work was everything my soul needed today. So thank you guys, all of you guys, for a great uh, worship set. Uh, we are going to take communion um, today. So if you're if you're in the room and uh, you didn't get one of those fellowship cups, uh, they're kind of difficult to open. Uh, so you might want to fool with it a little bit to make sure you can get it. Um, uh, if you need one, raise your hand, and, and our usher James Tavon will, will be happy to give that to you. We're going to do that in a few minutes. Um, and if you're uh, uh, at home, uh, you're in, you are encouraged to participate um, with elements of your choosing because we believe that the Holy Spirit is bigger than time or space and that He is with us right now. So um, our family has been watching in my house a lot of The Mandalorian. Uh, for those of you not aware, yeah, for those of you not aware, The Mandalorian, it's a, it's a TV series set in the Star Wars universe. Uh, but the main characters aren't anybody that we've met before in any of the movies. Um, the events take place shortly after the Empire Falls in the original trilogy, so it's a, it's a story about the events following the Return of the Jedi. And we're watching this show the other day, and I remarked like how odd it was to watch a show where you know exactly what should happen. And I'm watching the story unfold, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I'll tell you what he needs to do. I know exactly who they need to find. And, and it's funny because we may not know a whole lot about these particular characters. And of course, we don't know um, about how their specific plot points are going to play out. But we do know a fair bit more about the big picture than the characters themselves do. We know about how things got into the condition they did. And we also know something of where they're going in the future. Yet, there's this space western plopped right down in the middle of things that's kind of helping us fill in the gaps with Baby Yoda. So, when we come to a story, like our text for this morning, like I said, it's going to be 1 Kings chapter 12, it will be in 12 and 13. This text b- contains a bizarre story. It, it contains bizarre details about the state of things in one particular season of Israel's history. As we think about that, it's important for us to consider that as much as this, um, it, it, to consider the story, as much as we consider the context of the story, it's important for us to consider the context that the story is found. As in the Mandalorian, we don't know much about the characters themselves, and, and we do know a fair bit about the big picture, though, about how things got into the condition they are in, and also we're going to learn about, uh, we also know about um, where things are going to go after this particular plot unfolds, and it's interesting, like taken in isolation, um, you know, it, it's sad, and, and frankly, it, it's, it's a weird story. Things are going to get weird in a minute, but thankfully, these are not the only two chapters in the Bible. So, years ago, a few of us were, were at a lecture given by the, the biblical theologian N.T. Wright. And the lecture itself was on the atonement. 
basically how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross affects our own hope and salvation. And it was a very heady lecture, as, as Wright's lectures often are. And in the Q&A, our own Ann Jones, who, who was our kids' ministry director at the time, she stands up and she asks Dr. Wright, she says, how would you explain all of this to a third grader? And his response was really fascinating. It wasn't that we need more clever Sunday school curriculum, although we might. And it wasn't that um, we, we need uh, more like kids programming, like VeggieTales, although I'm a big fan of VeggieTales. No, the most important thing, Wright said, that we can do for the life of any community, kids community, student ministry, adult ministry, marriage ministry, anything that the church involves itself with, the most important thing that we can do is to tell the story, to tell the big picture story of, of where we, um, uh, the story that we, that we find ourselves to be a part of. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that one of the things that disturbed the religious leaders of Jesus' day is that he spoke as one who had authority. He had authority because he was the author, the author of the story that God was literally telling through Jesus' life. When Jesus opened his mouth and taught, he did so with authority because he, more than anyone else in history, understood the big picture. He understood the context of how things got into the condition they were, they were in and, and where things were going to go from here. And then Jesus ascended, and he told his disciples to go and make disciples who make disciples. And he was essentially, when he did that, he was essentially giving them the responsibility to go and tell this story to others and don't stop telling it until I come back. So we're going to get to 1 Kings 12 in a moment. But before we do that, I'd, I'd like to back up. And I'd like to tell the whole story again. Because this story is our story. It should be common. If we're really a church of Jesus followers, we have every responsibility to repeat it often. And if any of this is new to you, all the better. That's just another reason why we need to repeat it often. So get comfortable. I'm going to tell you the story of life, the universe, and everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God didn't just create it and, and declare it a finished product that was perfect. He, he breathed life into it and called it good. He had created a dynamic, flourishing creation that reflected the glory of its creator. And then God created human beings, and to them, he called them very good. Humanity was to be at one with their creator and was given the responsibility of having dominion, not dominance, dominion over that creation. Their responsibility was to be stewards of the environment they were given. They were to tend to it as a gardener tends to a garden, all while being in relational harmony with each other and especially with God, who had breathed all of this into motion. Until one day, when that harmony was broken, that harmony was broken when humanity rebelled against God. What began with little lies and the simple breaking of a seemingly minor rule soon spread like cancer to jealous hatred and led brother to kill brother, 
And before long, the rebellion was so widespread that it became systemic. It became ingrained in the very culture of the people, and the people forgot about God, and they forgot about their mission, and they forgot about who they were. They placed things on the thrones of their hearts that had no hope and were merely cheap imitations of the harmony with God that they once had. For a time, it might have appeared that all hope was lost because God might abandon this world to its own rebellion. Until one day, when a man named Abram, alone in the desert, hears a voice from God, and God says to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, get this, in you, God says to Abram, all of the families of the earth, shall be blessed. In Abram, who's later called Abraham, God calls this one family and informs them that they will be blessed, not to the exclusion of others, but for the benefits of, benefit of all the families of the earth. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, who was the father of 12 sons who became patriarchs of what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. With their numbers growing, soon the people of Israel found themselves living in the land of Egypt because of a peculiar set of circumstances involving a famine. At first, some of Israel's leaders were rescued, or respected and even given positions of power in Egypt. But as their numbers continued to grow, the Egyptians began to look on these people with contempt. And in time, the people of Israel became enslaved by the Egyptians. Centuries go by, and these people... These people who were God's rescue mission to the, save the world forgot about God, and they forgot about their mission, and they forgot about who they were. Until one day, when a man named Moses, alone in the desert, hears the voice of God. Moses has actually grown up in the Egyptian king's palace and had fled from the king after he discovered the truth of who he was. Through a burning bush, God speaks to Moses and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering." And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of, Egypt, of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land, uh, to a broad land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And then Moses. Moses asked the two most important questions that any human being can ask. He asked God, who am I? And then he asked, who are you? Like the words of one of our popular worship tunes, God essentially says to Moses, you are chosen, not forsaken. You are who I say you are. And Moses leads his people out of slavery, and for 40 years, the people learn who they are, and they learn who God is, all while living in the wilderness. And they're given the law, which helps them understand their identity as God's people. Yet the people long to be settled in their land until one day. 
when Moses dies and a man named Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And for years, the people of Israel live under what the Bible calls judges, which are essentially diverse leaders who help drive the story of Israel along. The Bible includes what, what is, what, what's referred to as the book of Judges, which records this cyclical pattern of disobedience and chastisement and then deliverance, and again, again, and again, and again. Eventually, things lead to civil war between the tribes of Israel. Bloodshed leads to bloodshed, and the people forget about God, they forget about their mission, and they forget about who they were. And the book of Judges ends with the most peculiar statement. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and all the people just did what was right in their own eyes. The introduction of a king is an interesting concept because you'll remember that at the heart of all of this was the principle that God didn't need a king, or I'm sorry, Israel didn't need a king because God was their king. Still, it was also evident that God had every interest in using human beings to lead his people. It also seems apparent that God isn't in the business of forcing his people into obedience. This pattern of disobedience and chastisement and deliverance seemed to be apparent throughout the story so far. But throughout the whole story, it's also clear that God desires there to be a restored harmony that was lost between he and his people. But he doesn't want mindless robots. He wants faithful men and women who love him and love others. But those patterns, those patterns of disobedience and chastisement and deliverance, they just keep continuing. Until one day, when the people demand a king. They say they want a king because they want to be like everybody else. And if there was ever a top moment in the story since that original rebellion that broke God's heart, I think it must have been this. I think this must have taken the cake. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. You're supposed to be my people, set apart to be a light for the darkness of this world. But God gives the people what they want. He gives them a king, and the first king is this guy Saul. Saul begins well, but unfortunately it doesn't take long for him to forget about God, and he forgets about his mission, and he forgets about who he was supposed to be, and God decides to replace him with someone else. And God chooses this young shepherd boy named David to be the next king. It, it was said that David was, was a man after God's own heart. This is important because David takes the throne, and in many ways he's as good as Israel got in a king. It's not that he's perfect, but when he fails, he confesses his sin and asks God to renew him after one particularly horrible moment. David is recorded in the book of Psalms as saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Another vital point about King David is that God promised something specific to David that colors everything that comes after it. God creates a covenant with him and then says that through David, God is going to establish his royal line forever. He promises David a forever kingdom that will be established long after David dies. And then David dies. And his son Solomon rises to the throne. And Solomon begins well. God asks him, what do you want? And Solomon says, give me an understanding mind that I might govern your people. 
your great people. A splendid request. Compassion, humility, and integrity of leadership. Now we're getting somewhere. Maybe now we've got ourselves a king. Solomon becomes internationally renowned for his wisdom. And this just leads Israel into its heyday. The temple is built, and Solomon builds a grand palace, and this just draws more attention, and you get this fascinating story that we looked at last week where the queen of Sheba comes to visit Israel, and we're told that it just took her breath away. Most importantly, when she sees it, she comes into the land, she sees Solomon, she sees the grandeur of everything that Solomon had built, and she says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you might execute justice and righteousness. Here we might just have something. The queen of another nation comes to Israel, sees all of the, uh, the, what the people had done, and then gives glory to God. Maybe this is a taste of that blessed to be a blessing stuff. There might just be some hope here. But then she leaves. And instead of Solomon seeing all the blessings that God had given him and his people as a means to bless the world and spread justice and righteousness, he turns instead toward the darkness of his own heart. And he begins to worship other gods, false gods, in order to appease his wives that had come from foreign nations And these idols become adopted into the worship practices of Israel. It's even discovered that Israel, Israel, who had been rescued from slavery, it's discovered that Israel had used slave labor for these building projects. Apparently, the oppressed have now become the oppressors. God then declares that he is going to divide Israel and Solomon dies as his adversaries rise against him and things fall apart just as it looked like they were starting to improve until one day. First Kings chapter 12 begins with the ascension of Solomon's son Rehoboam to the throne. The people come to Rehoboam and they say to him, listen, king, your father worked us hard He worked us to the bone. We're going to follow your lead, but it's going to be a whole lot easier if you'd lighten up on us. So Rehoboam asks for a few days to think it over, and he goes to the the elders and asks for their input. And and the elders say, yeah, yeah, that's reasonable. Verse 7, chapter 12, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. What excellent counsel. Teachers, business leaders, parents, take note. In other words, go back to that humility stuff that your father had originally asked for. Evidently, Rehoboam didn't want anything to do with that. And we're told he abandons the elders' counsel, and instead he goes off to hear from his school buddies. And he goes to these young guys, and instead, he, uh, these young men that he had grown up with, and, and they tell him, no, 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 here's what you should say. You should tell him, hey, guys, <clears throat> my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. You thought my dad was bad? You ain't seen nothing yet. 
And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. It's a little uncertain what exactly that means. Other translations basically say, my dad may have beaten you with whips, but now I'm going to beat you with chains. So Rehoboam ignores the advice of the elders and instead listens to his inexperienced friends and Israel crumbles and divides over it. Freeze frame right there for a second. And you might see might start to see why I wanted to back up and get a running start at this. How did we go from God telling Abraham that he'd bless the whole world through this family to the king of Israel threatening to beat his servants with chains? They forgot about God. They forgot about their mission. And they definitely forgot about who they were supposed to be. They forgot their identity. And now the land was divided, and the story gets weird. Rehoboam ruled from the south in Jerusalem with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Everyone else was in the north under the rule of the new king, King Jeroboam. And God commands them not to fight each other, but Jeroboam in the north begins to worry that once everyone goes back to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship at the temple, they're going to want to rejoin with the south again. So at that point, Jeroboam really loses the plot. He comes up with this plan, and and he makes these two golden calves for the people to worship. He even announces to everyone, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But that's not all. Jeroboam then sets shrines and fills them with priests, even if they weren't from the, the priestly tribe of the Levites. He institutes a new feast to compete with the one in the south and and leads the whole thing himself from the the altar. Uh, Things are going wildly off the rails, but then it just gets even more peculiar. Just as Jeroboam is standing at his altar, a holy man from Judah shows up and prophecies against the king. The king makes a move to have the man arrested, but his arm goes limp at that exact moment and the altar falls apart, which is exactly what this holy man said was going to happen. So here's the king, unable to move his arm, pleading with this holy man to heal him. The man does heal him, and the king is so grateful that he invites the man to stay for a meal. But the man responds that, he says, no, I'm on a mission from God, and, and he, I'm under strict orders not to eat anything until I return uh, to where I came from. So this holy man leaves the king, but the whole thing is seen by these two sons of a prophet. These two sons, they go tell their dad everything that had happened with the king and the holy man, and the dad goes decides to go out looking for this holy man. He finds him, and he invites this holy man back to his house for supper. But the holy man says, no, 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 I'm under strict instructions not to eat until I get back. But this prophet says, no, it's okay. And he lies to him and tells him that an angel had visited him and told him to give this holy man dinner. Well, the holy man believes him and goes home to have supper with this prophet. As soon as they start eating, God breaks in and says, How dare you? I told you not to eat until you got back. Now you're going to die and you won't be buried with your ancestors. So they finish the meal. You finish the meal? Anyway, they finish the meal and the holy man leaves. But he only gets a little while down the road before he's killed by a lion. It's in the Bible. Now, there's this dead corpse 
on the side of the road with a lion on one side and the donkey on the other, and these passers-by start walking back towards the town, and they think, well, that looks strange. Um, And when they go back to town, word gets back to the prophet, you know, the one that gave the guy dinner. So the prophet goes out to find this corpse, to find the guy. He loads him back onto his donkey, brings him back to the village to bury him, and we don't know what happened to the lion. So he buries him in his own tomb, and at the funeral, everybody mourns and comments about how sad this all is. And after the funeral, the prophet asks his sons to bury him right alongside the guy when he dies. If you're like me when you were studying, when I was studying this this week, I'm like, what the heck? It's like we were going on the road with the plot, and then all of a sudden things take a weird turn. And there's more, of course. We're going to continue next week with where we'll see the more common story of the prophet Elijah, but let's just sit for a moment with this story, with this bizarre thing about a holy man and a, and a king who wasn't really supposed to be a king in the first place and worshiping idols and, and, and a holy man being eaten by a lion and, and what? Let's just sit for this a moment as we prepare our hearts for communion. I love that this is in the Bible because I think it is a stark reminder that we can lose the plot. As you know, this isn't the end. There's still more examples of the patterns of disobedience, chastisement, and deliverance that the biblical narrative give us. The people of God continue to forget about them. The people of God continue to forget about their mission. And they repeatedly forget about their identity as God's people. This happens over and over and over and over and over again. until one day when a king arrives who fulfills God's promises. This king is Abraham and Moses and David and all the prophets as they were truly meant to be. When King Jesus shows up on the scene, he announces the gospel that God's kingdom, the forever kingdom that was promised to David, was within the grasp of all his people. And Jesus lives this sinless life and he dies a sinner's death in order that we might finally be free from sin and death and evil and he just asks us to follow him. Jesus was how God made good on his promise to Abraham to bless the world. Jesus was the new Moses who led God's people out of the slavery of sin. And Jesus was and is the only one true king who is asking us today to follow him and to live into his righteousness by loving God and loving others. So we're going to take communion now because this supper, the last supper, it is the meal that Jesus gave to us to help us remember the plot. Better yet, it's the meal he gave us to remember the author of the plot. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, it's as if he was saying, no, keep your eyes on me. Follow me. The craziness of this world is going to keep on with its foolishness even after I leave. And we see that today every time you read the newspaper. The craziness of this world is going to just keep on keeping on over and over and over again. It's going to be very easy to lose the plot. 
but keep your eyes focused on me. And we're going to get through this together. The church. The church exists for the purpose of helping the world stay on plot. And it points towards a time of new creation when heaven and earth will at last be one. King Jesus will reign and God and his people will once again live in harmony. See, our call as a church is to to anticipate that good news through everything that we are and everything that we do. Our call is to keep telling that story and keep pointing towards the King Jesus who is the only one worthy of our allegiance. 